Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, yet again, we're taking the wrong turn at the Aylesbury Pike, leading once more back to the Dunwich Horror. But before we start down that dark path, there's a little bit of news. I got sent a copy of Hypergraphia Issue 1, a new fanzine for Call of Cthulhu fans, or fans of the mythos in general, that's been put out by a lot of familiar names. Yeah, a lot of the good folks we met at Necronomicon last year, where I believe Issue 0 was released. Yes, yeah. yeah. So we've got such good friends as Adam Alexander, Anthony Lee, Dudley, Badger McInnes, Charles Gerard, is that how he pronounces his surname? I, I, I think he pronounced it Gerard, I, otherwise known as Keeper Chad from the Miskatonic University oh, podcast. Yeah, cool. Brian Murphy, Elizabeth Murphy, Sean Murphy, there's a lot of Murphys there, <laughs> Ed Possing and Matt Puccio. I haven't had a chance to read it cover to cover yet, but I have dipped into a number of the articles, and it's really rather nice. The basic idea is that it's about sort of the conjunction between language and the mythos. So, two of my favourite subjects. There's lots of really weird articles in there about how, for example, the mythos is communicated online, or there's a nice article about different mythos-infused writing instruments. Another one written by Keeper Murph, which is the rules for going to the Library of Solano, which is a fun read. Now, you mentioned this is issue one of Hypergraphia. Well, last time at Necronomicon, late one Saturday night, I was strolling through the streets of Providence with Keeper Murph, and we, we strayed into a darkened car park, and wandering across the car park, we came upon some strange gentlemen. One of them reached into their bag, and in the middle of a night exchange in a dark car park in Providence, I was passed a copy of this very magazine. I think probably issue zero then, perhaps. Yes, yes it was. By, if I recall correctly, I identified the man as none other than Jonathan Powell, Ah. who for a few dollars gave me my first fix of hypergraphia. (laughs) He started feeding your word habit then, did he? It just seemed like a really weird situation. (laughs) I'm in a dark car park in the middle of the night and somebody's selling me a, a Cthulhu fanzine. It sounds almost like something out of a William Burroughs story, doesn't it? It does. Is this the same dark car park where they had a goat spread over a fire at one point? Different car park, but, you know, every car park had something weird in it in Providence. And now we return to the Dunwich Horror. Well, when we left things, young Wilbur Waitley had been given a mission by his grandfather, old wizard Waitley, to find a more exacting version of the ritual that he needed from the Necronomicon. And to this end, he'd been corresponding with librarians around the world, trying to find the Latin version of the Necronomicon somewhere. As long as it has page 751. Yes. And as things turn out, there is one not very far away. So Wilbur Waitley heads to Arkham. Making his first and only sojourn beyond Dunwich, he heads straight to the library at the Miskatonic University where he consults with Dr Henry Armitage. The two had met years before when Wilbur's precocious learning had attracted the interest of academics. Now Wilbur arrives clutching his worm-eaten copy of the John Dee translation of the Necronomicon, asking for access to the library's Latin version. 
I can't picture books being worm-eaten. It just fills me with dread thinking of what could happen to my book collection one day. Yeah. Worms well, crawling through them. You do get silverfish in this country, and they do like eating book bindings. I mean, every now and then I see one crawling around my house and squashing oh, do dead. They? Yeah, Because I, I get them in my bathroom. I've got some stuff to kill them, but I've, I haven't actually got around to putting it down yet. But yeah. sorry if there are any, like, silverfish protection league or anything. But <laughs> oh, Or if there are any silverfish listening. Wait a minute. Fish. <laughs> oh, the, 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 Has somebody been the casting the spell yeah. in my bathroom when I wasn't looking. <laughs> it was one of you, wasn't it? It was. I, I don't think I can go to the lavatory without casting it, Paul. Armitage keeps an eye on the strange figure, alarmed by his inquiries about Yogg-Sothoth. Looking over Wilbur's shoulder, Armitage sees that he is looking up a passage about the return of the Old Ones. They walk unseen and foul in lonely places where the words have been spoken and the rites howled through at their seasons. The wind gibbers with their voices, and the earth mutters with their consciousness. They bend the forest and crush the city, yet may not forest or city behold the hand that smites. Kadath in the cold waste hath known them, and what man knows Kadath? The ice desert of the south and the sunken isles of ocean hold only stones whereon their seal is engraven. But who hath seen the deep-frozen city, or the sealed tower long garlanded with seaweed and barnacles? Great Cthulhu is their cousin, and yet he can spy them only dimly. Ea, Shabnigarath, as a foulness shall ye know them. Their hand is at your throats, yet ye see them not, and their habitation is even one with your guarded threshold. Yogg-Sothoth is the key to the gate, whereby the spheres meet. Man rules now where they ruled once. They shall soon rule where man rules now. After summer is winter, and after winter, summer. They wait patient and potent, for here shall they reign again. Well, this is a long passage, and it is the longest excerpt by far that Lovecraft ever used from the Necronomicon in one of his stories. It gives us a lot of the ideas that make up the Cthulhu mythos here. So the idea that there are these entities from beyond that are so alien, they're not even made of matter that we can perceive. This becomes a very important thing in the story as we go on, the idea that they're effectively invisible to us. They're formed of such a thing that we can't really harm them. They're just there, so patiently biding their time, waiting to come back as some sort of cycle, like the cycle of the seasons, that we're here for a short time. This is their winter as we're walking the earth, but eventually their summer will come back and things will change. Are you saying winter has come? For them, yes. Mm. Throughout this story, we've had this theme of smell. Mm. By their smells, men can sometimes know they are near as, as a foulness. Yeah. Smell is such an important thing in this story. And that's a great thing to use in your games as well, I think. I mean, in our modern life, we don't really encounter really bad smells that much. Well, speak for yourself. I was going to say, you take, take a walk at lunchtime out by where my office is and you get a good <laughs> whiff from the uh, sewage treatment plant in East End of Milton Keynes. Mm. I still think, you know, I've been in some places, like slaughterhouses and places like that yeah, you, when I was you, a kid. Oh, you grew up and on a farm, get, so yes. Yeah, you get yeah. some places where the smell is so bad, 
it almost makes you vomit and it's almost a physical thing that overcomes you and you just have to leave and i haven't even got a very good sense of smell but and the smell of death can be so strong it's just like a punch in the gut like i say in the modern day i I just don't think we often encounter those sort of things because everything's relatively clean and yeah we have bad smells as we call them but but the smell here is stranger than that i mean we encounter this regularly throughout this story this idea of the odours that are left by particularly the entity that's shut up in the Waitley house. It's described as being foul, but another time it's described as being like the smell of a thunderstorm. No one can really identify what it is. I mean, this isn't a conventional smell of putrescence or excrement or all the normal things that revolt us. This is something alien. And that description of it is smelling like thunder. A thunderstorm is normally quite a crisp, clean smell, or maybe there's the smell of ozone, which might be slightly repellent, but, you know, it isn't a foul smell. So these contradictions really go some way towards giving us this idea that this is something that is outside human experience. It also just seems like a weird pairing of thunder and smell to me, because thunder's always something I immediately associated with sound. So unless there's some synesthesia going on here, then it's a bit of an odd pairing. When you get a thunderstorm, particularly with lightning strikes, what happens is that it affects the oxygen in the atmosphere and it turns O2 into O3, which is ozone, which has got a very distinctive smell to it. Not one I've come across. It's the kind of thing you might associate with... I was about to say electrical supplies, but you you might think of electrical burning then, and that's a bit different. But it's that almost smell of the sea that you get sometimes in conjunction with electricity. I'm probably going to have to fit into Paul's camp here. My sense of smell ain't that good. Ah. It just seems like smell is a very primeval thing and it latches into our memories perhaps stronger than any other sense. And I think we can use that in our games as well as a you know descriptor of things, not just saying how it looks, but saying how it smells is, is a great one to, to pull into games. Absolutely. I mean, when I wrote Blackwater Creek, for example, the main motif that runs through that is one of smell, that there is a particular strange smell that the investigators encounter that they keep encountering all the way through the scenario that is sort of understandable in human terms, but at the same time it is meant to be an alien thing and it just sort of builds and acts as a harbinger of impending doom. And there's this idea that, as well, these creatures walk in the places where the right words have been spoken at the right time. And this is something that has birthed, I think, a thousand Call of Cthulhu scenarios. This idea that there will be people who try to find these weak places or find the right words to say and break through these barriers, bringing these things back outside their normal cycle of summer and winter. I'm always intrigued as to why people would do this. I mean, let's look at this in context of this particular story. Why are the Waitleys doing what they're doing? I think you can only really make a lot of guesses there. There's not enough information in the story to say why. But we've got to be able to at least infer some stuff because the story doesn't really work. I mean, these things in general, I think, don't really work if we can't understand at least where an antagonist is coming from to some degree, even better if we feel some sympathy for them. Wizard Waitley has gone out, he's contacted this god from beyond space and time, and it has impregnated his daughter, possibly using him as a vessel for doing so. And the daughter has given birth to things that will then act as tools for bringing about 
a monumental change. And we're not just talking about the return of Yogg-Sothoth or the summoning of a beast from beyond space and time. It's spelt out elsewhere in the story. For a start, uh, you know, almost a byproduct of it is going to cleanse the world of human life. But it's more than that. It's going to take the Earth somewhere else. This isn't just these creatures coming to Earth. This is Earth going to where they are. They're going to move it out of our universe and take it somewhere unimaginable. I think I'm with Matt. It doesn't give us enough in the story to actually tell what their motivation is, but I would read into it some kind of analogue to the Christian rapture, that idea of you know a certain number of souls being taken up and so on. And old man Waitley, I'm assuming, thinks that he's going to join them. And maybe going back to our talk about the Whippoorwills, the Whippoorwills didn't get him and his soul's still free to join the great old ones or whatever. But that's just me theorising. But yeah. I kind of figure these wizards and these people that do this in service of the great old ones, Yogg-Sothoth and so on, he's got his gold coins. Is that some part of the deal? But also beyond that, I'm assuming that as a wizard, he's going to get some otherworldly reward, or at least he's been conned into thinking he's going to, or that he's just been driven so deranged by all of this that, you know, he's just convinced himself that this is the right thing to do. And maybe there is no payoff for him. And certainly when we encounter Yogg-Sothoth for the first time in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, which came out a little while before this story, there is the idea that as an entity, he almost serves as Mephistopheles' figure in that he grants power to magicians. And there may be some element of that here, but short of the gold coins that Wizard Waitley gets, which he doesn't really use for much other than buying cattle to feed his offspring anyway... It's not like a classic Faustian bargain where he is getting earthly riches or pleasure or anything like that. He's living a fairly miserable, mundane existence. So I guess a pursuit of knowledge does sort of make sense there, that he's getting insights into the true nature of the universe, and it is the power of understanding the only other thing that makes any kind of sense to me is pure dreadful nihilism. Maybe earthly existence is so miserable for someone like Wizard Waitley that he just sees it as something to be eradicated and this is almost like suicide on a grand scale. Mm. He sounds like he has as much contempt for humanity as I do. <laughs> it is almost moving into antinatalist philosophy then that humanity would be happier if it never existed. And old man Waitley is going to sort that out. This yeah. is why you identify so strongly with old man Whaley, Matt. Oh, yes. <laughs> Not just the voice, you know, the whole ethos. <laughs> Some people just want to watch the world burn, or in this case, be overrun by the great old one. And there's this really cool phrase about Yogg-Sothoth being the key in the gate. It says, Yogg-Sothoth is the key to the gate whereby the spheres meet. It sounds really cool and I like it, but what do we make of that? I've thought of this before and I've hinted at this in a couple of different scenarios I've worked on. Mainly because there's the concept of sphered space and unsphered space, which appears in the mythos. Spheres relate, in my opinion anyway, the way I've interpreted it, to different dimensions and different cosmoses that meet at various points. Say you've got a large bowl and you throw a load of balls you want, tennis balls, ping pong balls, whatever. They will meet at various points. They will touch each other, but only in certain key areas. Surrounding that in the gaps 
is the Magnum Memorium, the nameless mist which supposedly begat Yogg-Sothoth, Azathoth, and the other gods. So it's the source of or creation in, in the eyes of some mythos authors. Um, is this the space in between? Yeah, the space yeah. between the different universes, uh-huh. this gap. Also referred to in a couple of scenarios, they've identified it as limbo, where there are lots of pictograms hanging in the air which connect to different points in throughout all realities. It's like a universal shortcut that you can use to get wherever you want. In most scenarios, it ends up being potluck that you pick the wrong symbol and, oh, different universe entirely, oh, different planet, middle of space, oh, well, sucks for you. <laughs> um, but then outside of sphered space, you have the likes of Quichilotas, which is beyond everything. It's outside and placed by a completely different ball game, but occasionally can get summoned into our world, and that's why it hates sphered reality. You've got the Hounds of Tindalos, which, again, don't come from the spheres. They come from outside, maybe, again, somewhere completely different from Kuchilotas. But for me, Yogg-Sothoth is a manifestation or a personification, if you used uh, Tawil Amir, the avatar, the one that's in Through the Gates of the Silver Key, that can guide you to the ultimate gate. He is a representation of those points in space where those different universes touch each other, like in that bowl where the different balls touch around that there's only so many points in reality where that can be Mm. but he is a personification of space well it's an interesting conception that so each one of those balls is like an alternate reality would you say different universe alternate universe or maybe even parallel maybe there are some ideas of multiverse where you've got certain elements replicated between them or they could be completely standalone entities I mean, is that visualisation your own creation? Is that something you've come up with or is that something you've... It's, of- it's, I've, I've interpreted it from a couple of different um, passages that some authors have written about and what some scenarios hint at. It just seems to me that it all fits together quite nicely using that analogy. Mm. Mm. I think more reductively, I, you can look at it from the point of view of multidimensional physics that Yogg-Sothoth and entities like him just exist in more dimensions than we do. I mean, you know, almost going back to that uh, idea of flatland, we're seeing protrusions through into our reality of these entities that live in dimensions of space that we simply do not have the equipment to perceive. And that when we're calling them forth, that we're just getting them to protrude into our little three-dimensional bit of what's going on. The same way as if you had a two-dimensional creature and, and living on a sheet of paper and we were looking at it, that they, you know, it might call on us and we might just sort of stick our finger in there and fuck up its life. We're back with Flat Stanley again. Yes. Well, did, did we ever leave him? Also in this quote from the Necronomicon here, we see Lovecraft with his an invisible needle and thread stitching his mythos together with mentions of Kadath. We have Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. He loves putting in these references, and obviously we've got the Necronomicon that appears in other stories. We've got Kadath, we've got Yogg-Sothoth, we've got Shabnigarath, we've got various things that just weave all these things loosely mm-hmm. together. Well, we've got Cthulhu in this as well. I mean, Cthulhu doesn't get mentioned in many of Lovecraft's stories. It also plays into this idea that we talked about back when we talked about the Call of Cthulhu, that Cthulhu isn't a god, that he's described as being their priest. Here, when the Necronomicon says, Great Cthulhu is their cousin, yet can he spy them only dimly? You know, far beyond human understanding as Cthulhu himself is. These entities like Yogg-Sothoth are almost beyond his understanding. So this is just some kind of giant family get-together, really, with cousins and <laughs> brothers and sisters all coming together. 
Um, you're, well, str- you're straying into Delethian territory there of making it all some kind of family tree. Well, well actually, Great no, Cthulhu Lovecraft, is their cousin. Yeah, I mean, Lovecraft did do some of that in his correspondence. He makes little passing references like this in his stories every now and then. But he did actually put together the first family tree of the old ones. Was, uh, wasn't that done as some kind of a in-joke, though? Yeah, it was, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't think Derleth got the joke. Now, Armitage is there looking over Wilbur's shoulder, and this spooks old Armitage. And when Wilbur asked to borrow the book, promising to keep better care of it than his own battered version, the librarian refuses. Armitage sees something alien and malevolent in the boy. Considering how tall Wilbur is, he must have been on a step ladder. Because <laughs> well, he even sat down. Yeah, at this stage he's supposed to be almost nine feet tall. Sitting down, he's going to be taller than most people. I can just imagine him per- perched on the chair behind him, looking over. Yeah. Surreptitiously. <laughs> Don't mind me, I'm a librarian. On a set of library steps, (laughs) squeaking around. A little while later, there's an incident at the library and Armitage discovers the aftermath. Wilbur had attempted to break in, only to be savaged by a watchdog. His normally trusty dog-killing pistol appears to have misfired. Hey, the dog saved the day! (laughs) Well, not for Wilbur, it didn't. Yeah, but think of it, if Wilbur had been left around, he would have been performing rites on top of a sentinel hill. The dog saved the fucking world! Well, I mean, this is an interesting thing, which is, is Wilbur really the villain in this story? Yes, he he is trying to bring about a fundamental change to the world. But, I mean, this is something he was born to, this is something that he was created to. I, I see him as very much a sort of tragic figure at times, a victim of fate, a victim of death. I do actually have a little trouble perceiving him as a villain. Wow, so this is some moral equivalence here. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he's just misunderstood, is what you're saying? No, I I think, as I said, he's he's a victim of circumstances, a victim of his upbringing and, and what he was born into. But I don't necessarily see him as evil. The whole idea of whether this is really a story of good versus evil. I mean, that's a fairly unusual thing for Lovecraft anyway. His his stories tend to be a little more amoral than that. And people have seized upon this story as being his good versus evil story. I struggle a bit with that. I mean, just because something is an existential threat to humanity doesn't make it evil any more than, say, a disease. You can't say that, say, Spanish flu or smallpox or something like that was evil. I mean, it was harmful, but evil? And what about Wilbur? If he was in one of our scenarios, he's read the Necronomicon. He's, as we're about to find out, not your regular guy. He's eight feet tall and he's semi-monstrous. In one of our scenarios, if you were statting him up, he'd be pretty tough, right? Yeah. He's taken out by a dog. He just had my dice rolling. (laughs) He doesn't have any like spells that he can blast it with. He's eight feet tall. He can't take on a dog. Hmm. Well, to be fair, we're playing um, Beyond the Mountains of Madness at the minute, and we had an incident with one of the PCs has a dog. That dog still rolled an 01 and killed one of the saboteurs outright in one hit. But they were just a human, right? Yeah, but they can still bleed out. (laughs) My point, serious point here is, if we were statting this character Mm. up, would you not stat him pretty powerful when it came to taking on foes? Yeah, I guess if you're going through a play-by-play look at this fight... Wilbur is so used to dealing with dogs with his pistol. So he comes up against this big guard dog and he does his usual thing. He pulls out his gun, he tries to shoot it as the dog is going for him. The pistol misfires, he's obviously a bit taken aback by this, you know, maybe spends a moment just trying to figure out what the hell happened there. 
And during that time, the dog hits him hard enough to knock him over, in which case it can get at his throat, it can get at something vulnerable. And just because he is monstrous doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't feel pain. You know, the shock of being knocked over, the shock of the, the gun misfiring, the dog ripping his throat out. I can actually buy that. Well, even the fall, he maybe hit his head on something on the way down. Yeah. Mm. But also, I think it puts forth the suggestion that he's maybe actually physically quite vulnerable. And mm. that when we create adversaries in Call of Cthulhu, they could be physically quite vulnerable. And even though they've got this magical learning, it's not D&D here. They're not you know, lightning bolts that he might have in his magical learning. Their ways of opening up the way to Yogg-Sothoth and so on, but that doesn't help him in combat. So somebody who's got this knowledge and these abilities and they've mutated physically, they may actually be quite a weak adversary for investigators in Call of Cthulhu. Put all his points in size and only 10 in con. <laughs> <laughs> but this sets up a really interesting dynamic for the story as well. At this point, we're about halfway through what's a fairly lengthy piece. And up to this point, it's been really obvious that the main antagonist of the story is Wilbur Waitley. And yet, all of a sudden, he's dead. I think in a scenario, that's a really interesting thing to do. In this case, it happens off screen and it's a dog doing it. But even if it's the player characters, the investigators, they face up against someone like Wilbur Waitley. They think he's plotting to destroy the world. And then they pull out their Tommy guns and dynamite or whatever the fuck they're using and atomize the poor beast. And it's sort of, oh, right, OK, well, we sorted this one out easily, folks. Yeah, job well done. And and then a little while later, you, you get to sort of say, oh, hang on, there's weird stuff happening in the background. Maybe you better look at that. Oh, things aren't quite as clear cut as you thought. I like pulling the rug out from under people. Give them that nice easy win and then throw them up against something really horrible. As Armitage examines the dying Wilbur, he shoes away everyone except his colleagues... Professor Rice and Dr. Morgan. The air in the room is filled with a strange, unidentifiable stench. Bad smells again. Mm. When his clothes are torn away, the form of young Waitley proves even more horrific than Armitage anticipated. The thing that lay half-bent on its side in a fetid pool of greenish-yellow ichor and tarry stickiness was almost nine feet tall. I just wanted to seize on this word ichor, because this is a word we use an awful lot, particularly in horror games, and it's become sort of a stand-in for any alien or weird bodily fluid, mm. or or even fluid, in terms of very science fiction films. I've heard, you know, the blood of aliens described as ichor, and, you know, I've certainly seen it in plenty of Call of Cthulhu scenarios, but it has a very specific meaning. This should have been a Lovecraftian word of the week. It should, yeah, except I don't think it was used in many other stories. So it, oh, I kind of associate it maybe yeah. with Lovecraft, but like you say, it's used in a lot of other places. So what does it mean? It turns up a lot in Munchkin Cthulhu. There are a shitload of icors you can throw at other players as one-shot items. Uh, but icor is the blood of the gods. It is the fluid that runs through the veins of the gods in Greek mythology. I wonder whether the Dunwich Horror is... The story that actually planted that in the communal geek consciousness and led to it being used in so many other things. I, I could be wrong, but I'm not aware of having encountered it in stories much earlier than this. It's one of these very specific phrases that has just then evolved through so many stories and through so many misuses to mean something far more general. But in this case, it is being used in its precise meaning. 
Anyway, continuing with this section, or at least shortly after that section. Above the waist it was semi-anthropomorphic, though its chest, where the dog's rending paw still rested watchfully, had the leathery, reticulated hide of a crocodile or alligator. The back was piebald, with yellow and black, and dimly suggested the squamous covering of certain snakes. Below the waist, though, it was the worst, for here all human semblance left off and sheer fantasy began. The skin was thickly covered with coarse black fur, and from the abdomen a score of long, greenish-grey tentacles with red-sucking mouths protruded limply. Their arrangement was odd, and seemed to follow the symmetries of some cosmic geometry unknown to Earth or to the solar system. I love the fact that he says that their arrangement is odd. Not the fact that they're there, it's just the, the way they're arranged. <laughs> yes, they're strangely yes. arranged. Who <laughs> would put them like that? Yeah, my, my tentacles aren't laid out like that. <laughs> so, hold on. There's a score, that's 20. A 20 tentacles on his abdomen. And how would you arrange them in a way that follows the symmetries of cosmic geometry unknown to Earth or even the solar system? <laughs> what does that even mean? It's like attempts that people have done to try and braid Scott's beard. So you can <laughs> try to get it round in those nice little plates or plaits and then put a little bell on the end. <laughs> Well, that's nailed it. <laughs> but how would you arrange them? I mean, they're just 20 tentacles. Um, you'd arrange them cosmically, Paul. Right, okay. Yeah, it's a weird one. It just I, seems really over the top. Yeah, the simplistic I mean, kind of cool, version. But... Well, the simplistic version, I suppose, is that when we see things in nature... Oh, we've talked about this before with the, the difficulty of imagining things that are outside anything in nature that we may have encountered... And when we encounter living entities, we tend to see certain kinds of symmetry or at least geometric structures, fractal structures, for example, in the way that they grow. And if you had a living entity that didn't follow any of those rules where, you know, it appeared at first that you know, the arrangement of things was random, but then you started seeing patterns in there, but just patterns the likes of which you may have encountered in pure mathematics, but never in nature, then that might actually be quite disquieting. I can buy that it was a geometry unknown to Earth, because Armitage is a pretty learned guy. But how would he know it's unknown in the whole solar system? <laughs> I guess if he's looking at the movement of planetary bodies and the shape of asteroids and so on that might right. be seen through telescopes. Looking back at one of the descriptions that's given earlier when Wilbur's running naked up to the top of Sentinel Hill, they do make reference to the, some kind of belt, in inverted commas. Yes. I just kind of got the impression that he basically weaved them together going around his body so it was almost like a ring of satin around his midsection and that those leggings that he was wearing was actually just the big, thick, yeah. coarse hair. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, we'll get to what lies down there in just a second. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to Wilbur's nether regions now. On each of the hips, deep-set in a kind of pinkish, ciliated orbit, was what seemed to be a rudimentary eye... Whilst in lieu of a tail, there depended a kind of trunk or feeler with purple annular markings, and with many evidences of being an undeveloped mouth or throat. The limbs, save for their black fur, roughly resembled the hind legs of prehistoric Earth's giant saurians, and terminated in ridgy-veined pads that were neither hooves nor claws. When the thing breathed, 
its tail and tentacles rhythmically changed colour, as if from some circulatory cause normal to the non-human side of its ancestry. In the tentacles this was observable as a deepening of the greenish tinge, whilst in the tail it was manifest as a yellowish appearance which alternated with a sickly greyish white in the spaces between the purple rings. But he's also got an eye on each hip. Yes. There's a few instances where we find that uh, Lovecraft decides to examine something in as much detail. He does it with the Elder Things, he does it with the Great Race of Yith. It's basically when he's got some really messed up image that he really wants to go into it in detail rather than falling back on indescribable. One of the things that stuck with me, particularly as as mentioned earlier than this, is the goat-like features. That more resembles to me the traits that you'd associate with someone like Shubnigarath rather than Yog sothoth This this does seem a bit weird. In some of Lovecraft's revisions, however, he does make note of the fact that uh, Yog sothoth is apparently the husband of Shubnigarath. So uh, I thought that was Hasta. She gets around. <laughs> She's obviously polyamorous. <laughs> And also just of the devilish aspect, I think, is being yeah. evoked here. And Yeah, definitely. Going back to the point I made a few minutes ago, this is a very weird description. I mean, it's something utterly alien. But each of the individual descriptions of parts of its anatomy and the things are all still very much made up of things that we'd see on Earth, see in nature. And this is the thing that I keep going back to in these descriptions, that it is so difficult, if not outright impossible, to visualise the truly alien. I mean, we can recombine all these elements of things that we've seen in different sea creatures and in different insects and creepy crawlies and change the size and the coloration of them, you know, make them scintillate like cuttlefish or put eyes on the end of tentacles... But, yeah, ultimately, it is just a remix of nature. And feels very much like the thing. Yes. <laughs> this could totally be, you know, a mutated thing from the film, right? It's it's very much like that, um, well, with all these bits sort of sticking out. I mean, there's no kind of sign of, like, it being melded with other people, but almost like it's been melded with lots of other bits of genetic stuff from, like, under the ocean and, and various things manifesting on its body. More than that, in Joseph W. Campbell's original story, Who Goes There, there is a sort of default form that the thing takes when it's, it's moving between assimilating people or reproducing them. And it's not a million miles away from this. It's the big, blue, ugly, three-eyed thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And also we've got these tentacles with, like, little mouths or whatever. Earlier on in the story, we had mention of sores on Lavinia and I think Old Man Waitley as well. So this kind of implies that was young Wilbur feeding from them mm. with his tentacles? I think it's, it's a fair assumption that these were hungry mouths. So this is going to cost Old Man Armitage some sand points, isn't it? I mean, all three of them maybe oh. rolled really well. I mean, it's really interesting, his reaction to this in the story, because he very much takes it in his stride. He's obviously au fait with the contents of the Necronomicon and sees what Wilbur is up to earlier. He is already a fairly hardened Cthulhu investigator in that respect, or at least comes across as one. It makes you wonder what kind of history he's got. I was going to say, either he's got a mythos-hunting history that we don't know about, or, in Call of Cthulhu role-playing game terms, he has read the Necronomicon... Maybe he didn't believe it, but now he's seen Wilbur Waitley and suddenly he becomes a believer in, in all that stuff and will take quite a, a sand hit, but 
will give credence to all that Thule mythos knowledge that he's got. Because as we progress in the story, he, he totally buys into all this stuff. We don't get this usual Lovecraftian protagonist who doubts and disbelieves the, the existence of all these things. He totally buys into mm. it, it's seemingly without question. Because he's seen it on the floor right there with tentacles and eyes on its hips. He gets his colleagues in. I mean, he's obviously alarmed at what he sees, but he doesn't fall apart. I mean, you say fall apart. I mean, he doesn't have a fit of anxiety and, and be unable to act. But in another way, he perhaps does become totally obsessed with this and spends late mm. nights reading up books. And so we can kind of picture perhaps some effect of sand loss here, but not mm. in terms of a disabling effect. He finds the books more scary than the monster. I think if you were looking at this in purely game mechanical terms... I would be inclined to say that Armitage was a believer before this stage, because when he was reading this stuff that Wilbur was going through in the Necronomicon, he didn't have that moment of doubt. It wasn't like he looked at it and thought, oh, he's interested in the same weird alien folklore as I am, and yeah, isn't that interesting? He looked at it and immediately thought, oh, this lad's trying to end the world, I better stop him. So what you were talking about there with the sort of crashing wave of of mental destruction that comes with realising, oh, all this is real, doesn't come at this stage because he's already made peace with that. Mm. And with his dying words, Wilbur mutters phrases from the Necronomicon, as you do. Nagai! Nagaga! Bogshogoth! Yaha! Yogsothoth! Yogsothoth! And once again, the whippoorwills have gathered. Wilbur's death seems to spook them, however, these little avian psychopomps that are sitting on the windowsill outside. The shrilling of the whippoorwills had suddenly ceased, and above the murmurs of the gathering crowd, there came the sound of a panic-struck whirring and fluttering. Against the moon, vast clouds of feathery watchers rose and raced from sight, frantic at that which they had sought for prey. And again, this goes back to the idea that the whippoorwills are eating souls. You know, they're seeing this as prey. They're not taking his soul off to somewhere nicer. It's tasty soul. But they don't get him, or they do get him here? I I don't know. The fact that they're panic-struck makes it sound like these whippoorwills, when people, humans, like Old Man Wakely, die, they're there anticipating a nice bit of soul food. But I'd interpret this as they get a little taste, perhaps, of Wilbur's soul. It's, this is not good eating. Uh, a few coloured greens. <laughs> yeah, I'm already at that it was when they say, frantic at that which they sought for prey, that... Hey, he's getting away. Quick, let's get after him. But I suppose you could argue that it's, oh, yeah, this is, this is ugly eating. Yeah. Yeah. So they're both, I think, fit. It's, it's an ambiguous turn of phrase, and I think one that works either way. Wilbur's corpse disintegrates quickly, leaving no trace of a skeleton. How bloody convenient. <laughs> uh, it's like the, the Mego, they leave no evidence either. It's yeah. uh, frustrating. Just GM fear, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, actually, let's examine that for a moment. I mean, is this the kind of thing that we tend to use in our games? And we we talked a little bit in the previous episode about how much Lovecraft lays up front in this, perhaps more than we might do in a normal Call of Cthulhu scenario. With this, he is doing almost the classic X-Files thing of snatching away the evidence. You think you're going to be able to prove something weird happened here. Ha ha ha. No, no, it's all going away. Is that the kind of thing that we tend to do in games? 
Personally, I'm all for giving investigators evidence of the weird because there are very few things in life that are incontrovertible. If you turn up with a weird body or a weird artefact, most people are going to either think, yeah, it's real, but they're the kind of people who might be taken in by the skull of the Pildam man. There's going to be a lot of other people who are just automatically going to assume that it's nonsense and that you're mad for trying to convince them of the truth behind it. And you know, something like that could do more harm to your credibility if handled right than just saying, oh, you know, I saw this body, but it disintegrated. Now, I've seen enough episodes of The Invaders when that happens as well. No, I'd give them the body, just have no one believe them. Alien Autopsy was real, though, right? (laughs) I remember watching the premiere of that. I think it was the 14 Times Unconvention in London back in the early 90s. And they showed this footage. And I remember thinking, well, for a start, it's a nice bit of special effects work. But it's weird the way the mind seizes on small details like that. The thing that I looked at, which I just could not get past, even if I were inclined to believe such bullshit... I was looking at this body lying on the table that they'd filmed, and I thought, why would aliens have exactly the same calf muscle structure as a human being? Because you could see all the muscle definition up the legs and so on, and I thought, those are the most human-looking legs I've ever seen. Obviously, they've gone to some effort to make the head and the hands look different, even though it's, it's still a humanoid form. But the legs look so utterly perfectly human... I cannot believe in this in any way as an alien. In- Scott Dawood, alien denier, Yogg-Sothoth <laughs> sympathiser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm part of the cover-up. Yeah, absolutely. You and the fake news. He is a man in black. Have you seen what he wears? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, as we said, when the medical examiner arrives, there's only a sticky white mass left on the floor. And even the monstrous odour. Can you believe it? Even the bad smell is disappearing. Yeah, I mean, they, well, they've obviously got good air freshener in the library. Yeah. Uh, get rid of all that, you know, that smell of musty books. Yeah, Armitage don't want that no. hanging around. No, yeah. He's it, opened the windows, freshened up the place. Yeah, and you, you want a nice pine-fresh library, perhaps a hint of lavender. And details of old Wilbur's death are covered up. Officials visit the Waitley farmhouse, but decide not to enter. Put off by the unearthly stench, again the smell, and the strange lapping noises that we referenced in the previous episode. Though they go through the books in the barn and recover a manuscript written in an unidentifiable language, sending this off to the Miskatonic University for analysis. I mean, presumably that will go back to Armitage, won't it? He's the authority on these things. and, And yes, yes, oddly enough, it does. Yeah. And also this manuscript is written in an old ledger as well. So we often think of mythos tomes as being these crumbling old books or these strange scrolls or maybe clay tablets. But this is written in a ledger. Yeah, I mean, this takes me back to the Tolkien exhibition I went to and some of his works he'd written in like old college exercise books and on the backs of exam papers and so on, whatever he could get hold of. And back then... Mm then that's fairly contemporary paper was fairly rare i remember in one of the scenarios i wrote i 
put together a mythos tome which was written by someone who had basically been writing down his thoughts and analyses of various mythos tomes over the years and his own insights. And the whole thing was just box files full of notes written on scraps of paper and sometimes little notebooks or sections of notebooks. So, yeah, half of it was just covered with post-it notes and stuff I mean, like look that. at your own designs for yeah. your own scenarios exactly. and so on. If I died now and you thought, oh, let's try and put Paul's scenario together that he's been writing, it'd be quite a challenge because it's just like a load of miscellaneous notes here and there. And and so we come to the next section of the Dunwich Horror, where one of the first things we read is that all that has passed so far was prologue. And now the Dunwich Horror is about to begin for real. You mean we've done two fucky episodes and we haven't got to the main story yet? What's up with that? Thank you. Once again, we have gathered to say thank you. We would like to thank everyone who has backed us via Patreon and given us money, which allows us to keep the podcast going, pays for our running costs, pays for our time in actually putting this podcast together. And we are grateful to each and every one of you. And we have a few new people to thank. We sure do. Beginning at the $1 level, we have a big thanks going out to Lord Mordy. Ah, yes. Otherwise known as Lord Mordigian, a singer of the, the band Craftian, who I spoke to him a little while back on Discord and he told me about the band. And I, even though I am not much of a metal fan or even a rock fan in general, don't let the long hair fool you. I did listen to his band's album called Cosmic Awakening on Spotify and I really rather enjoyed it. It's all based on Lovecraft. Each song is titled after a, a Lovecraftian story. So there's you know, From Beyond, White Ship, there's so many others. I do highly recommend giving them a listen. Well, let's do that right now. Let's put one of his tracks at the end of the show. So hold on there when we hit the end and listen on for Craftian. But anyway, yes, thank you very much, Lord Mordy. We, we do appreciate it. Indeed. Thank you, Lord Mordy. Always got a soft spot the channel, God. He's one of my favourites. And he's got a soft spot for you, Matt. <laughs> Hole in the garden somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and now we move on to our more dreadful tier. At $5... As many of you will be painfully aware, we sing our thanks to backers. We do not claim in any way to be musicians or singers or competent. There's what, a reason for that. <laughs> but what we lack in skill we make up for in... Help someone? I don't <laughs> Tor know. <Yeah>. Torture? <laughs> what, in gratitude. That's the word I'm looking for. We make up for in gratitude. And our first song today goes out to John Sumrow who is an artist of great talent. And, yeah, we are big fans of his work. Yeah. One piece in particular of John's artwork I really, really like is the Mego piece that's in issue four of the Blasphemous Tome. Well, by the time this goes out, with any luck, it'll actually be in their laps, squirming. You've got a lot more faith in Royal Mail than I have. <laughs> yeah, I'd like, just like to back that up with my own praise of John's work. The first one I saw was a picture that he'd done, an illustration of Scott's scenario, Blackwater Creek, which is just a, a fantastic image yeah, that uh, well. hopefully we'll be using at some point in the future because he's kindly uh, allowed us to do that. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much, John. Yeah! Yeah, Sumro! He 
Our next song goes out to Paul Jones. So thank you very much, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Yes, thank you, Paul. And we hope um, this brings you some modicum of, of pleasure. Yeah, Paul Jones, you'll be welcome up outside the shed any time, boy. <laughs> thank you, Paul. Thank you. Oi, thank you, Paul Jones. Thank you. Who are Yay, Paul Jones. Thank you, Paul. Brand new child of York Sothoth, and I'll give you the key and the gate. Drinking a bit of scrumpy up top of Sentinel Hill. Meanwhile, on social media, now we've had a new iTunes review from Shaman42 in Finland. Cthulhu fans, listen to this. This is the best Cthulhu RPG related podcast there is. Listen and be inspired. Well, thank you very much for that, Shaman42. Other Cthulhu-related podcasts are available. And we've also had some great feedback on our recent episode about violence in Call of Cthulhu. Yes, Transhuman on Discord said, I think, to a fair extent, violence as a solution comes from the threats themselves. Fight or flight is a natural response because those are the most effective against a physical threat from another creature. More abstract and insidious threats, while more nuanced, are difficult. I understand this. I mean, you know, for example, in the color out of space, there's nothing to punch there. There's nothing to shoot. I mean, you could possibly drop some sticks of dynamite down the well, but, you know, what the hell good is that going to do you? Make me feel better. And I think we'll, we'll perhaps come to this a little bit in the next episode of this look at the Dunwich Horror. Chief McLean over on Discord also says, Something to add is that if this topic interests you, I'd recommend reading On Killing, The Psychological Cost of Learning to Kill in war and society. It's recommended reading in most American military service colleges and law enforcement academies. The main focus is that it is a transgression against the fundamental basis of the human psyche to want, or need, to hurt someone else. We are hardwired in our DNA to not do it because it doesn't contribute to the continuation of our species. Yet, in modern society, the need to do violence is sometimes justified and we struggle to cope with the after-effects. Yeah, I'm not sure I entirely buy the middle part of that thesis, just simply because human history is so bloody. I mean, any time two groups of humans, two tribal groupings or country groupings or religious groupings get together, it seems to end in bloodshed and violence. We do have these inhibitions against hurting each other, I think, within our, our societal groupings, but it becomes distressingly easy once we step outside that. But yeah, I, I agree with the idea that most healthy people in a situation where they may end up having to kill another person will probably need to be trained in order to do that. It is something that, that I'd like to think most of us are not casually capable of. Lord Mordy on Discord says... You should really encourage Matt to tell the story of when he hurt someone who had it coming. I wanted to hear about that so bad. And indeed... 
actually mentioned this to Scott when I was editing the uh, the episode because you mentioned this in the episode, Matt. But then we didn't actually like put it back to you and say, do you want to tell us a bit more about that? So I don't know how you feel if this is something you want to discuss or not. I, I wouldn't want to go into all the details on it. Um, for, for personal or legal reasons? Uh, n- not the latter. Right. Um, there's a few times when Angry Matt comes out of the box. Thankfully, they are very, very, very few and far between, but this was one time when, when it did come out. Basically because I had been pushed so fucking much that eventually I just snapped, and it involved pinning someone up against the wall and pretty much trying to strangle them. Hmm. So, yeah, lift, lifting them a good inch or so off the ground by their neck. Said, said person never fucked around with me again, so that was at least one positive outcome, but that's pretty much all I want to mention on that. And yeah. kind of how old were you when this happened? Was it? Uh, in my teens. In, in your teens, like at school yeah. or something? Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Well, I kind of feel, Matt, that you, you did this thing and you were at school then, right? And whilst it's still not acceptable, it's not right, but I think... Often at school, it's a very strange environment in many mm. ways. And that, you know, there's a lot of, um, unfortunately, it's a place where a lot of bullying and a lot of um, kind of fights take place. Or, or certainly it's the case in many schools that that sort of thing happens. You've got a whole bunch of people that are going through teenage years together. And it is a, a kind of a, a real melting pot where everybody's put together in a pressure cooker sometimes. You know, not to get into it any deeper, but it just seems like more credible that sort of thing would happen in your in your school years. Yeah, and and when you're a teenager, I mean, your brain's still developing, your body's flooded with unfamiliar hormones. You're dealing with changes to your life and emotions that you've got no real preparation for. I think stories like yours are far from unusual. Mm-hmm. <whistles> And now, what are our final thoughts about today's discussion? This is a bloody long story. Well, since when have we done more than two episodes on one single story? Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, the shout out of time we did in two episodes, and that's almost twice the length of the Dunwich Horror. There are a lot of really important and excellent bits in it and a lot of interesting ideas. It doesn't necessarily hang together. It feels like less than the sum of its parts. But some of those parts are you know, absolutely amazing. Yeah, I think it's very rich in its elements that we've discussed. And I've enjoyed talking about it. I hope it's mm. coming across well in the episode. And one thing I wanted to bring up is something that came up in this episode but we didn't really get into, is this whole thing of just who was Wilbur's father? When I first read the story, it's like, oh yeah... Yogg-Sothoth is the father. It's like a kind of virgin birth here. And, you know, there is no father, as we said. But when we strip it down to and take out those supernatural elements, we've got the old man, Waitley, living with this daughter who is psychologically disturbed. And she's got this child. Where did it come from? And we see references to Wilbur looking like old man, Waitley. Yeah, there are a number of ways you can interpret that. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily uncommon for a child to look like a grandparent because they are a direct descendant on the other hand i guess it depends how you get into the whole mechanics and anatomy and biology of the conception of wilbur waitley regardless of whether you consider him to be the child of a god or the product of incest whatever it comes down to is still really creepy 
I mean, Robert Price brought this up on HP Podcraft, Literary Podcast. They had him on as a guest on the first two shows. And aside from me imagining he sounds a bit like old man Whiteley, he, he, was, uh, he was a great guest. And he brought this up and it hadn't really occurred to me before. No, no, I agree. I listened to those episodes as well. And yeah, it, I'd always just pictured Wilbur and his brother, who we'll meet soon, as being very much the product of a union with Yogg-Sothoth. The idea of old man Waitley being the instrument for that, yeah, does add a whole new level of creep. But, I mean, that is pure inference. Lovecraft is very good at hinting at stuff. Part of it is the product of the time in which he wrote where there were certain taboos you, you didn't broach. And part of it is, I think, because he understood the power of implication as a tool for building horror. But this means that it's sometimes quite easy to read in ideas that he didn't necessarily put there because we're so used to looking for those implications. And I think this is a borderline case. I mean, he certainly very much does imply that this is the child of Yogg-Sothoth. On the other hand, he doesn't even really hint that it's Wizard Waitley's child, except the fact that the face of the brother does look like Wizard Waitley. There are so many ways you could take that, and I think it's such a subtle hint that I'm reluctant to see it as proof of incest. Well, we'll find out more about Wilbur's brother in the next episode. So until then, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemoustomes.com
I was going to try and do something in the Wurzel's voice, but nah. War. What war. about Old Man Waitley? Old Man Waitley had a farm. Yeah, yeah, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no more cider for you. <laughs> oh, God. I'm. Obviously, you haven't recovered from uh, Dr. Monkey Face's special brew yet. Well, I should have imbued you with the power to do this. <laughs> you obviously didn't drink enough of it. Oh, dear. <laughs>